This is a Crow's Nest podcast. Hi and welcome back to Titanic Talkline. I am Alexia and I am excited to introduce somebody who has an equally fabulous name, another fellow Alexandra, but a far more famous Alexandra. This is Alexandra Boyd. Thank you so much for joining us from your, as you said, your your chilly little, your chilly place. My chilly place, my my tiny house in uh, <laughs> six acres of old growth forest on the Olympic Peninsula. And that sounds idyllic. Well, I don't, it is, it's quite lovely. It's quite lovely. Yeah, our friends call us the woodland creatures because we are they're deep in the woods, yes. Well, that sounds so pretty. I mean, I, I live in Austin, Texas and I don't want to make it sound like there's no pretty parts of Texas, but like, I'm in like a suburb. You know, you look outside, it's like, oh, look, a road and some homes. Yeah. Hooray. I, I look outside and I see trees, trees and more trees. Trees, and trees, and more trees. Trees, trees, and more trees. And in fact, my my tiny house is an Airbnb, and people mm. come to the city, like yourself, who look out at roads and houses, and <laughs> they come just for the weekend, and they they leave going, "Oh my gosh, it was like waking up in fairyland, mm. and we're so relaxed now. Thank you so much for allowing us to stay." I'm like, "Well, you you do know you paid me to stay. <laughs> it's a business." But I mean. So we used to have um, a beach house that we would rent out. And I know that for some people, when they go on vacation, they really, you want to do things like you want to go somewhere that has a lot of activities. You want to go, I don't know, golfing or snorkeling or surfing or jet skiing. You know, people really want to do things. But our favorite place to go was, at least for me, this little house on an island called Topsail Island. It's very small. It only shows up in the news when there's a hurricane because the whole thing freaking floods all the time. A poor, poor little island. But there's really nothing to do there except for go to the beach. There's, that's it. And to me, that's perfect. And it's that same sort of thing where it's like, wow, you just wake up and you see nature. Well, and and we were a little worried at the beginning because there is they're skiing about an hour away. There are a lot of beaches. You can go whale watching. You can go oh. to some of the little Victorian towns. But there's not really uh, events that happen here. There's a lavender festival that happens in Squim in July, but that's once a year. But it's what we've learned is that people come here to do nothing. Mm-hmm. They're quite happy to do nothing. There's a reading loft. They sit up there and read books or you know, um, and, and really decompress, which, you know, we get to do all the time, even though there's there's so much work to do, because when you have a piece of land, there's always something that you're building or developing, or at least my partner is yeah. true. He's quite amazing at it. I'm, oh. I'm doing other things. I'm making movies much more important. <laughs> yes, you are. And before we get to what you're currently, currently doing, I want to ask you the question that I always ask everybody on the show, because oftentimes what people are known for, you know, in the Titanic world isn't necessarily their Titanic origin story. So what is your personal story with the Titanic, including the movie? But did you did you have your own interest in it before? No, oh. no. I did not. Obviously, I was aware of the uh, that there was a ship that hit an iceberg sure. um, um, and being English it's very hard to not be aware and I think many people would say that um, but I was living in Los Angeles working as an actress and I hadn't been there very long I didn't have an agent um, but a friend of mine was working in a manager's office and he called me because he had the breakdown of auditions mm-hmm. he said they're looking for English actors for a new movie that's being cast about Titanic. And I was like, oh God, well, how can they tell a, how can they tell another story about the Titanic? This is a little, like who's, who's directing it? Oh, James Cameron. And I, and I remember thinking, oh, I like The Abyss. That was a good movie. <laughs> Actually, it's one of my favorite movies and it's certainly my favorite movie of his. We can talk about that a bit later if you want. Yeah. But um, uh, just cause it foreshadows so much um, from my point of view as a filmmaker. Um, and I, I didn't have an agent, but I submitted myself and um, and called the office. I thought my English accent's going to work. It's going to, you know, go in my favor. 
So um, they did eventually call me in and I was ready to read, but there was nothing to read. There were no lines for the Countess of Roths, which was the part that they were looking to, to cast. Mm-hmm. Um, so Mally Finn, the, the casting director said, um, come back next week and you can bring another actor and improvise a scene, a tea party scene or something that just so that you can show that you could imagine being on a, a big ocean liner in 1912 right. or write a monologue. And the irony was I couldn't get any of my actor friends to come with me. They, oof. oof, yeah. They were like, oh no, I need to be called in properly on my own, which is a huge, big mistake, big mistake. <laughs> they had so many parts to cast and so many people like myself auditioned for one role, but were given another one mm-hmm. you know that so, happened um sorry not to interrupt you but i was watching your your um the ship of dreams and a few people mentioned that happening to them where they're like i came in to read for a and i ended up being w always go always always you want to be seen you want to that you know go <laughs> anyway mm-hmm. so i so Option B was to write a monologue. And I honestly, I had not written anything since school. So I was terrified. Um, But my friend Nelson Aspen, who I had known since I met him in in New York in 1989, I think, the end of 1989, I knew he was a Titanic buff. He had a, he had a shelf full of Titanic information the video <laughs> of night to remember the book of night to remember he had a piece of coal that had been exhumed from the wreck and um so he he handed me over all of all of his information i spent a weekend watching and reading um a friend of mine lee flayton helped me write the monologue because i felt very which is ironic now when i'm a, a screenwriter but mm-hmm. this was 25 years ago and I wrote a monologue for the Countess of Roths as if I was going to play her. And I went in, I I did the monologue on tape. Thank you very much. Go away. And that was it. Um, And that was it. And then three weeks later, I was at a party and another English actress knows the, and I know her now very well too, knows Rochelle Rose, who got the part as the, the Countess Mm-hmm. And she, um, this this girl at the party, uh, found a, a way to delightfully tell me I hadn't got the part because her friend had. Um, and I was like, oh, okay, thanks. Thanks for sharing. Um, and then three more weeks goes by. I'm at my catering job and my pager goes, which definitely sets a place in time, the pager. <laughs> and um, uh, Titanic had called. James Cameron had seen my audition tape mm-hmm. and said, yeah, Countess of Roth's taken care of, but get Alexandra another part. And so I was cast as a first-class woman um, and spent two months of my life on that set in Mexico. And the rest is history. When, like, I think that most people kind of only ever dream of being in a movie or being on TV or doing anything that's very sort of glamorous sounding in that way. What is, what is that like when you get that sort of confirmation and it's like, not only have I been chosen for a part, but it's a part in like, I don't know. I'm, my brain hasn't quite woken up yet. So it's like quote unquote, a real movie. Cause I don't want to make it sound like other movies aren't real, but you know, it's it's a big blockbuster film. It's a big name director. It's a big production. It's the it's the marquee kind of production. What is that like when it's sort of like, oh my gosh? That's such an interesting question because, um, and of course, remember, I'm talking to you after a further twenty five year career in the industry. Yes. So at the time when you're, I was in my mid thirties. It was very exciting. It was very exciting. It was what everyone moves to Los Angeles to do is to is to get the prize. <clears throat> I was making a living as a commercial, a television commercial actress. So this was a very different animal to be involved in. But <laughs> all the while we were all there, we were told to cash our paychecks because this film was going to be a huge flop. Mm-hmm. And they were literally drowning in 
in the money they were spending like water and uh that you know enjoy yourself while you can because it's going to sink like the ship so there was this dichotomy of oh my gosh look at these amazing sets look at my costume look at the process look at the look at all the work that's being done um for this film and we had no idea Um, and then when we all went to see the cast and crew screening there were so many of us they had to use two next door cinemas at um in century city there were so many they had to sort of show us simultaneously even then it had not been released to the public and we were all like amazed oh it's amazing oh my gosh and you got to see the roles people you'd got to know in the bar at the Real del Mar resort or on set but hadn't actually seen their their role in the film now you get to see Yoan doing that and Linda Kearns doing that and and all their eat everybody so it's, it was a it was fascinating from that point of view because all cast and crew screenings are you know it's a big love fest it's a big mutual appreciation society but nobody none of us were prepared for what followed we couldn't have been what followed for you what followed for me was um more commercial acting and another like seven or eight years in los angeles and then i kind of burnt out and i wanted to go back to london very badly so i in 2006 i decamped and went back to london for a bit but we did you know uh i have to say because that's why i made my documentary ship of dreams titanic movie diaries we did realize a group of us after the film won a shed load of oscars that maybe we should write some of our experiences down. A couple of the actors had done that. They had been kept keeping a journal and one guy was, you know, he was publishing a blog. Remember those, you know, he was putting out his day to day of being on the set of Titanic. Um, and I, Rochelle, I think it was Rochelle's idea. She said, maybe we should all do that and try and get it published because all of a sudden this thing that was going to be a big failure became the biggest success ever and we were part of it so i gathered about 27 28 of us i think it's including mine 28 of us and i was like the headmistress and making everybody hand in their homework and we tried to get a publisher but we couldn't and it was way before self-publishing you know now you can say i've got a you know a 500 page book and I'm going to put it online and people are going to buy it and read it. But we, 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 no publisher was interested. So I kept those diaries until about two years ago when I looked at a producer I was working with on something else. And I said, um, I want to sit down the actors who will, who want to, I want to sit them down and have them read these diaries for the first time in 25 years and see what happens. Plus, at the time, I was about I was beginning to connect with these super fans who put themselves out on um, on Instagram. Um, these incredible artists or uh, passionate collectors, um, and I just figured there was something to say there because we're you know trying to answer the question of why this particular film endures so that's that's the connection the 25-year connection of being in the film having an extraordinary time getting a bunch of actors supporting actors not movie star actors they've all had their say this was giving a voice to people who were never asked what their experience was they never asked what their research was for a particular role and as it turns out it's it's kind of fascinating you know to to speak to the individuals and break it down. People watch the documentary and they say, I will never watch Titanic the same way again, because now I know the backstory of that lady there or that guy, that guy, you know, Baker, Jockin, Liam, uh, Liam Tui holding his father's, his grandfather's silver flask that he takes a swig from. You'll always be aware of that story now. 
If you haven't had a chance to see Ship of Dreams, I anyone listening, I really highly recommend that you do if you get the chance because chances are good if you're listening to the show, you relate very strongly to the stories that are told in this documentary because um as Alexandra was saying, she talks to a lot of the um minor and extra actors, but also a couple of the people that you may recognize if you also listen to this show from other, you know, shows and corners of the internet, people that, you know, like Brittany uh, from Titanic scene by scene and literally everyone else whose name just went out of my brain because that would be useful Uh, information. Okay, uh, Dale McCarthy, who makes the miniatures. Thank you. And uh, Zach, uh, who in Australia, who has spent... I probably shouldn't really stay, say, but into the hundreds of thousands of dollars on collecting costumes and props. And, you know, he has a, an entire museum of his own collection in his house. And then Ilka, who uh, in Germany, who has recreated in minute detail every sequin, every little spangle and diamante of of every one of Kate Winslet's dress. I don't think she's quite gone through the entire wardrobe yet, but she's on her way to it. She's on her way and she'll do it. I think what's most incredible is just how much has come out of it. I mean, the, the premise of my show is a different person every week. So I'm constantly getting people on. And it is fascinating, the absolute broad spectrum of people that are on. You have people that are traditional artists. They paint. Um, I've had a burlesque artist on. She has a Titanic-themed burlesque act, the parody toy maker. Um, I've had Don Lynch on. And it is fascinating, the spectrum of interest that runs in this movie and this historical event in tandem. Yes. Yes. That's what I've learned. And, um, uh, you know, the people that we speak to on um, Titanic talk, it's, it's a very similar feeling of, of the breadth and depth of interest. And we thought we would, We'd have one season and, and you know, 10 people. We had 24 episodes the first season and we've already recorded 12 more for season two. And, you know, we talked about it a little bit before we, we started recording is that mm-hmm. I know we could go, we could go on and on and on because, you know, something tragically like the, the Titan submersible that was lost earlier this year reignites. That was, that was the top story for an entire week. In, in world news, because people are absolutely fascinated, as were those five people on that submersible, mm-hmm. enough to spend $250,000 to go down and look, look at a wreck. And there are plenty, there are plenty of shipwrecks to go and visit. Oh, yes. That's the one everyone wants to see. Yeah. It's... It's interesting how it affects people so differently because there are some people that decide after hearing the story of the Titanic, they're going to, they're going to start making a historically accurate life jacket. That's, that's their decision. And some people decide I'm going to spend a quarter of a million dollars on the chance to go see it because there was... It is a chance because if the weather is, you you don't get to go. Yes. And I I think I read somewhere, nobody quote me on this. I'm not a statistician, but I think I saw somewhere that was like, just again, due to the conditions and the fact that, you know, traveling down there is a, is a big kerfuffle in and of itself. There was something like a 20% chance you would even see the Titanic if you made it down there successfully, just because as you said, weather, sediment, Currents could be weird. I don't know. Maybe you encounter a massive shark. I have no idea. But like anything could happen. Possible that is not built to go down to the wreck and under that pressure 20 odd times because many people had been in it before. It wasn't like it was its maiden voyage. It, no. You just happened to be on the, the trip that everything failed. I, I, I talk about it in the context of obviously the Titanic on the show where it's sort of like, it's not a big deal until it is. And it's this, this, the submersible to me emphasizes that kind of thing where it's like, well, it's not a big deal. No one's died dot, dot, dot yet. And, you know, it's, there's a lot of things that you can do that you shouldn't. And I, 
just feel like there needs to be something slightly better about that because I, I don't know. I don't know anything about procedures and governments or what have you. It just that just was so sad for no reason. I have a story. Um, I have a, a Titanic crew jacket, you know, like a bomber jacket. And mm-hmm. it's quite beautiful. It's a black bomber jacket. It has an, an, an embroidery of an embroider of the ship and some stars twinkling and Titanic in big gold letters on the back. And it has my name, uh, Alexandra Boyd, first class woman, which was my official title in the film and a white star line logo. Um, and we were invited to go and a lot of people got given a crew jacket, but if we wanted to purchase one for ourselves, we could go to this, this shop where they had the, anyway, so I, I got myself a jacket. I got two actually, because I thought I might maybe sell one for charity in the future. And actually 10 years ago, I sold one of them for a thousand pounds to finance one of my first short films. So yeah, it was brilliant. But I have kept this one. And it was cold that day, sort of the first cold day of the autumn. And um, I was going to Safeway, the supermarket. So I just threw it on uh, because I don't really wear it. It was just, I don't usually wear it, uh, but I did today. So I'm walking around the supermarket and I'm at the self-checkout. And this guy frightened the life at me. He tapped me on the shoulder and he said, what's that? I said, what? Excuse me? That? What? What? I said, oh, oh, the jacket? Because I remembered I was wearing it. Right. Jacket. I said, oh, well, I was, um, I'm a cast member of uh, Titanic 25 years ago, and um, this is a crew jacket. Oh, oh, he goes, because I've been there. I was like, what, you've been to Belfast to see where they made? No, 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 I've been, I've been there. And he meant he'd been down to the Titanic. He said, I go, I go every year. What? Like, what? <laughs> what? He goes, yeah. I said, would you be on my podcast? Because <laughs> I, I hadn't met anybody who'd actually been, I have since, but hadn't met anybody who'd actually been down there, except James Cameron, of course. Oh, oh no, 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 I can't come on a podcast. I was like, oh, okay, fair enough. He go, I said, so, so wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. What, did you know, um, did you know, Dr. Rational. Yes. Oh, yes. I, I went in that. I went in that submersible. There was like these sort of these 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 uh, these really odd responses to my questions. I thought, oh, well, you know, I'm not in the business of I'm not in the business of persuading somebody to come on my podcast. That, that's sure. not. Yeah, it's fine. Um, and then he goes, wait a minute. I'm sorry. I still don't understand. What is that? Mm-hmm. He's pointing at my jacket again. I said I was. I'm a cast member of James Cameron's Titanic. I was cast as a first class passenger and this is my crew jacket. Oh, oh, you were in the film. Yes, I was. And actually I've just made a a film myself about it, but he'd already turned back to his self checkout and he wasn't really interested, but it's just an example of, there are a lot of millionaires here in Washington. You know, we have Amazon and Google and Microsoft. So in my mind, I had made a complete biography of this chap that he was, um, living on some waterfront property, uh, shopping at Safeway. And every year he buys himself a ticket to go and see the Titanic because he's got that much money. I'm just, I'm not always the nicest person in the grocery store. I just don't, I think I would be absolutely offended by that interaction. If you're like, what? What? You interrupted me to be mean to me? What? Well, he wasn't, maybe I told it a little bit too aggressively. It felt yeah. aggressive. Let me tell you from my point of view, what I I often take away from these interactions, because my point of view now is not as an, as an actress, even though I'm very proud to have been cast in that film mm-hmm. and be chosen by James Cameron and directed by James Cameron, all of that stuff that we all talk about in, in my documentary. I am a filmmaker now and I'm a storyteller. And Ship of Dreams is my second feature film. My first one is a narrative, it's a ghost story. So it's very, very different although it is set by the sea and we do have a spectacular underwater sequence at the end. Look out for it. It's called Widow's Walk. It's on Amazon Prime. Hmm. And I think people look at me or meet me and they don't see a filmmaker. They see a 60-year-old woman who 
says she makes films and they go, okay. Or people read scripts I've written. So I've got this London gangland 1960s TV pilot I've written and people are swearing all through it and getting violently murdered. And of course there's a female protagonist because that's how I planned it. People read it, they read it before they meet me and then they meet me and they're like, what? How, how much of this did you actually write? I said, I wrote every word of it. I wrote every word of it. They don't, they don't expect, they don't expect it. So when I, if you randomly meet somebody in the grocery store wearing a Titanic jacket and you're, you're connected to Titanic in whatever way you're going to approach, I would imagine. And, and so he started the conversation. And when I responded, it, it, it didn't make sense. What I was saying didn't, I understand it didn't make sense to him because I'm used to it. Because mm. people don't, I walk onto the set and the cinematographer starts talking to my male producer, assuming he is directing the scene today. Or months and months later, we're doing my interviews for the movie and he's the same cinematographer is writing up the clapper where you write producer and then director and then DP. And he goes, who's the director today? I'm like, me! Always. <laughs> and it's, 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 the, it's the challenge of being a female director and all the lip service about oh we need more women to be making films and when they do make films you know they make money at the box office Greta Gerwig looking at you well done but she's she's a tiny tiny percentage the rest of us are working and I know this happens in many many professions across the board but we're working in male dominated industries surrounded by men and oh my gosh have you seen that 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 thing that Meryl Streep says about men, we, we live in men's houses. Women have lived in men's houses all our lives. So we know how to talk men. We've mm -hmm. learned how to talk men, but men haven't learned how to talk women. And so I have had to learn to speak man on my own set. Mm -hmm. Because if I go, Oh, um, yeah, what I'd really like to happen today is, or do you think we could, what I'd love is, can we, no, you go, what's going to happen is this. No, um, I want that over there and please move this. And when you do that, we're, no, we're doing this. A female producer told me that, the, the woman who owns Peaky Blinders, she said, you've got to learn to start saying no, because that's what men do and they don't apologize for it. I, I can rerun re that exchange in the supermarket in my head again and almost hear me, hear myself apologizing for having to explain to somebody that I'm an accomplished actress of 35 to 40 years, that I have made two feature films and many, many short films and written them and produced them and raised nearly every single penny of finance for them and launched them out into the world, I feel like I have to womansplain you that you're talking to somebody that has done that. And it doesn't, it, it's tiring. <laughs> it's disappointing to have to continuously apologize for your accomplishments. Well, because it, it sounds like you're constantly having to bang your own drum when, mm -hmm. you know, the work itself should speak for itself. But you have to draw people over to experience your work as well. They have to see it, you know. Yeah. But I want to talk about Ship of Dreams because you, you know, this is something that you made and something that you are, you know, clearly very proud of. When... Did you, because I know you talked about getting people to start writing the diaries and, you know, that's sort of the basis of it. When did you decide, let's make this into a film? Um, uh, quite a few years ago, because I saw the 25 year anniversary coming along mm -hmm. um, and I was still in London in 2019. I met with a young man, Nick Peel, who worked at Spotlight. Um, English actors will know what Spotlight is. It's sort of a, it's a, 
it's like a directory of actors. So they have a big book. It's now all online, of course. So you put up your resume and your headshots and your showreel. But they have a, offices in London, in Leicester Square. And this young man was what? A Titanic fan. And through um, a friend of a friend, uh, Peter White, who's in my film, who's an actor, he was like, Nick has put all of the deleted scenes back into Titanic. He's <laughs> made like a... He, you know, wherever the deleted scenes are, he's put them all in. Do you want to come and watch it? And I, I don't think I was free that night. But I thought, um, and then I worked with Nick doing some, uh, uh, th there was a like best actor from graduate from drama schools in London and they wanted somebody to uh, direct them doing their monologues for this um, best actor graduate from drama school award. And um, Nick was was doing the filming for it. And I, we had this long conversation about Titanic. And I said, look, I've got these diaries and we've got Peter White here in London. Most everybody else is in Los Angeles or scattered to the winds. But um, could we sit Peter down, like start it with Peter? And that was in 2019. And then what happened the year after that? Uh, the pandemic. And um, through another very long convoluted story, I ended up here in Washington right before lockdown to be with Drew. And, um, and it sort of sat there for a bit and didn't, didn't go any further. And then once again, I saw, I saw the 25 year anniversary coming and I still had these diaries. And I had just interviewed Elizabeth Ng Wong, who is a documentary producer. And she told this amazing story on another podcast I have called Fierce Female Filmmakers, because I'm very passionate about getting more women to come and join me on set. And uh, I, I interview women in the film industry, asking them about their training and their passion and their and what they do and how they do their job. How do you how do you produce movies? And she told a story about um being a teacher in Hawaii and um, she was teaching history and English, I think. And she did an exchange program um, with some teachers in, um, oh gosh, where was it? Somewhere in Russia, but like deep in Russia, they were doing this exchange. So she goes to Russia, the, the, the Russian teachers come to Hawaii and then they go to Russia and Siberia Siberia it was I was like was it cold she went no it was the summer and it was extremely hot and humid so she's in Siberia and their Russian translator is a young woman who they can't she can't eat with them because there's not really enough food to go around and the American teachers just thought this was appalling so they took her to dinner and this young woman is explaining how oh yes she's seen Titanic in the movie theaters nine times there's no money, but you can go and see a movie like Titanic nine times. And Elizabeth, that was Elizabeth's moment of, I've always wanted to make movies. I need, to, that was her shift to getting a place at USC to become a film producer. So she told this story on my, on Fierce Female Filmmakers. And when we finished, I said, I've, I had put together a pitch deck for the documentary. I said, I've got these diaries and then I've got these fans. And I know you're really busy, probably. And she said, yes, I am. I've got two new projects and I've got a big job, full-time job coming up. I can't possibly. And then two, three days goes by and she emails me and she said, Alexandra, I've looked through the pitch deck and I realize there is something here and we have to make this film. And so we did. And I had a bit of money and some of the investors who'd invested in my ghost story, who had got their money back from that, <laughs> risked their money again. And um, we had just enough to, to film people in Los Angeles. And then I went back to London and filmed Peter again. And, and I caught the, the fans at the Royal Albert Hall at that live uh, performance of the, the London Philharmonic doing the, the soundtrack to the film. Um, and then, of course, we're also used to Zoom and and meeting on Zoom now. So we were able to save a bit of money by Zooming with Zach in Australia and Dale in South Africa and Ilka in Germany. And oh, and Brittany is in Boston, I believe. 
I think that the National Symphony Orchestra is mad at me because I kept emailing them during the pandemic saying, could you do um, the live orchestra with Titanic? Because they've done the live orchestra with other movies. Yes. Um, That seems like a no-brainer then. I'd agree, but they stopped responding after a while. So I think that they're just tuned out to ignore me. So National Symphony Orchestra, if you hear that, shame on you. Um, (laughs) uh, Any orchestras in Texas that want to take up the uh, mantle for that, uh, I'll come see it. It's not just an orchestra, is it? It's the it's the choir and the and the singing. Oh, it's the full thing. I know, I know, I know. It's a much bigger deal, but yeah, but you know, I think they've done it more than once. In Mm -hmm. uh, I went to the 2012 one at the Royal Albert Hall, which had the full orchestra, and uh, Kate was there, and James, Jim, and and a lot of the actors were there too. Well, sounds like fun. It also, I just. I will fully admit that sometimes sitting through a classical music concert is difficult. There is not a lot of visual intrigue. It is an audio an audio experience. Um, but so if having you want Titanic playing well, exactly, or e- even you know, I know um, I had originally tickets to go see one of the Harry Potter movies. Does something that's a little bit of visual intrigue can help you appreciate the score, especially once the score is live and it surrounds you in that way. As we're talking about music, I want to talk and highlight the composer of uh, Ship of Dreams, Titanic Movie Diaries. That Mm -hmm. young woman is 24 years old. She's still doing her master's at film school school in London. She's the daughter of a friend of mine I went to college with 40 years ago. And I had gone back, I had interviewed her for Fierce Female Filmmakers. um, And I knew she was going back to school. And when, and I knew she was a huge James Horner fan. And I said, look, I know you're at school, but we need somebody to do, do you want to just do a couple of sample tracks for this rough cut? Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, she smashed it out of the park. She's done a, a, a sort of rewrite of an Irish jig for when they're talking about the third class dining room, third class dance scenes. She's done, you know, uh, an elegant sort of chamber music. She's done this grand opening sweeping piece of music that's, you know, recognizably Titanic-esque, but of course not not plagiarizing, but it's just in the style of. And uh Gosh, people talk about the music all the time. They all the time in after they've seen the film. Mm-hmm. It was really nice. I liked the score. Um, as someone who's highly nostalgic, I you know I understand why. Obviously, you couldn't use the um, Titanic movie soundtrack. It makes yeah. a lot of sense. But it's like it would have been nice if you could. But I do like the score that she came up with. I think it's very very sweet's not the word that I want my brain is just I'm sorry I have migraines and I'm kind of in the middle of one of those migraine attacks so I don't have one right now but it's limiting my vocabulary so it's like words are hard um so in my brain I'm like it was sweet it's sweet's not the word that I want it, it a- appropriate yeah, also not the word that I want no it's t- the tone the tone is exactly right and um that's what you want often is uh is something in the style of no we we definitely couldn't couldn't use and wouldn't want to use the same way the visuals like we have used tiny bits of the film and because you get into trouble if you're not yes fair use and in fact we hired a a lawyer to make sure we hadn't used too much and she did have us cut some pieces out but actually Mm -hmm. we had too much of the film in at some point and and i had balanced that with dale's animations he does pencil sketches just like jack dawson's and he had pencil sketched frames from the film that we've animated. And to me, when we put those back in, because there was a point where we're like, yeah, we can use some of the film. It's fair use. It's a... And I was so happy when we took them back out and replaced them again with Dale's amazing animations. Um, and he was just so happy to do them, you know, because he knows the film. You know, they, everybody knows every frame of that film so well, you know. I want to go back to uh, something you talked about out uh, based on your experience on the set. I want to talk about your costume. Oh, my dress. Well, yes. What is what is lovely is that I at the time I knew that Kate had worn it for her screen test, but I completely forgot. Mm. And in the in the interaction with Zach and Dale, who you know a real costume history titanic costume history buffs um zach reminded me he said oh you know that dress you're wearing 
is the same dress that Kate is wearing in her screen test. Here's the screen test. And I hadn't seen the screen test. And of course, you can see the, the bodice and the sleeves. And I do remember one day at the top of the staircase, well, my very first day, um, Kate kept looking over at me and looking me up and down. And I couldn't stop looking at her because she's just so beautiful. She's star quality oozing out of that girl. And um, she went, I wore that dress in my screen test. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, really? <laughs> I was so chuffed I could, I could fit into the same dress as Kate Winslet. And ironically, Deborah L. Scott, the costume designer, was in that shot that day. Jim loves to do that. Like, okay, you're the costume designer. Get in costume and be in this scene. I think he's done a Hitchcock and he's somewhere in, in a scene. And also Peter Lamont, who was the art director. He was uh, he played the ship's cat, uh, ship's doctor in the first class dining room on a table I sat on. So I got to really sit and talk to him about about the the, the sets and and the um, and furniture and everything. So anyway, so Deb's there, and um, and I said, was was it? And somebody said, well, why don't you ask Deborah? She's right there. <laughs> Beautiful black outfit and a red fan. And I said, is this the same dress? She went, oh yes, we recycle here at Titanic. <laughs> so she had worn it however many months before they put it back in a box and then put it on me and one of the things that we didn't get to do in the documentary um because i tried i called disney and i called fox their wardrobe departments because all of these costumes go back into the in their, their rent you know you can rent them out whether you're a film or a you know you've got a costume party to go to you can go in and find an outfit that fits you and rent it and bring it back and and I called and I said, this is the dress. Do you have it? No, we don't. Disney, Fox, no, we don't. No, we don't have it. Um, and I said, can I come and have a look with one of my Titaniacs? Because if it's there, they will know. Right. Um, and we couldn't because it was pandemic. They wouldn't let us film in the costume department. But could you imagine walking along those aisles with Dale or Zach and pulling that dress off off a railing? We'd have all just melted on the floor. <laughs> I would love nothing more than to be able to walk those racks and look at these. Specifically, I want to look at the white Starline uniform replicas. Oh, yes. He has one of those. Uh, Zach has seen that. One of those, one. one of those um, navy double-breasted yes blazers. I, yes, I want one so bad. I'm in talks with a costume designer. I'm like, when I have the money, I want a white starlight officer's uniform. Cut to a woman's fit because yes, that's what I look like. But it's like I want one of those uniforms. Not to say that the dresses aren't beautiful, but there's some. I love naval, like naval fashion. So yeah. to, that's yeah. just the classic look to me. The yes. sharp sharp look but I, uh, many many years ago i was married to a pilot in the american air force and Ooh. we'd go to a wedding or something and he'd wear his his dress outfit and people would just be like oh my god is that your you know is that your guy it's like yeah it is and at our wedding he wore his whites so it was Ooh. like officer a gentleman and um in england especially women love love a man in uniform I think that's true of everywhere. That's also an American truism. Ladies yes. love a man in uniform. That's a yeah. that, that seems to be universal truthism. Yes. The yeah. my uniform of choice is clearly the navy, but I mean, <laughs> or you know, specifically like white starlight uniforms, but those don't really exist anymore. I I think it's fascinating how again I keep coming back to this question that you try to answer in your film and I try to answer on this show, where it's just like. What compels people to, as you say, you know, make a sequin accurate, bead accurate version of Kate Winslet's gowns from the movie or compel somebody to be to find out exactly how to make an era appropriate life belt from the time it's. Or someone like me, I'm, I'm from the state of Maryland. We're known for blue crabs and having the worst flag. It's not the worst flag. It's just on everything. And it drives me absolutely freaking insane. It, uh, just watch any group of cyclists go by. They may as well just run directly into the flag. But like, I'm from nothing to do with Titanic land. And I now spend how many hours a week recording a show about it? Yeah. What a phenomena. Um. Yeah, and ultimately, because I'm asked and I've said over and over again, I don't think it matters. I think um, what, you know, the shakedown of everything, and if you go to Pigeon Forge Museum or, or any of these places, 
uh, where they're making a lot of money out of people's passion or interest in this subject matter is that it always still has to boil down to the fact that 1500 people lost their lives mm-hmm. it's you know there's the it goes from the jack and rose romance the romeo and juliet the you know watching this uh, boat sink in almost real time on the in in a hollywood blockbuster movie but then it you know for me the most interesting part of the film is once the iceberg strikes because mm-hmm. now we we know what's going to happen and it still doesn't take any of the drama and tragedy away when james lancaster plays the father biles who's the um priest holding on to the cleat as it's tipping and tipping and he's got he's holding on to people and he's and he's um reciting a, a passage from the bible mm-hmm. and he wrote a diary for us but uh for yeah he wrote a diary but i couldn't find him for the film and then i found him for my podcast and we were like okay it was a very short diary like less than two pages and he read it again himself for the first time in 25 years on on titanic talk and we were all just absolutely moved to tears it was just mind-blowing he was taken straight back to being on that set not just being on that set but reproducing something that was so horrific and what's clever about the film is that jack and rose are you know walking around the ship and walking to the end of the ship and because we're following them through the frame through the through the telling of their journey from her getting back onto the boat to the very end of the poop deck, you're seeing the terror and the horror of all everything that's going on around them that you probably don't watch in the same way. If it was just, if it was just, if it was an explanation of this person and that person clinging to the anchor, you know, like Rebecca Klingler, (laughs) uh, mother at stern, as we, we called her, you know, or James Lancaster as the priest, You've, you're you're swept up in in the fact that once it was sinking, it was really sinking, and mm-hmm. how my mind is always taken. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Uh, we see what happens on the deck. We see that the there are a number of people who are trapped um, up, up below decks, and the mother putting her babies to bed and everything. But what we don't know and nobody talks about is if you were deeper in the boat and you were caught in a in an air pocket and the the ship sinks very quickly and just like the Titan implodes imploded, that that to me is more horrific waiting for your end than than fifteen minutes to die of hypothermia in the water, even more horrific. How can that not be horrific? But do you know what I'm saying? Nobody, my mind goes to all the other places on the ship that that we don't know about because nobody saw it. And they're still talking, I think, ridiculously about finding perfectly preserved bodies in those in those cavities in the ship. But that, Incorrect, everybody. That's not, incorrect. that's, I don't so, know much about science, but I know that. No, no. Oh, uh, I heard that they also found, along with those bodies, they found um, the Loch Ness monster in there too. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So we'll yeah. be seeing that very. We'll be seeing that very shortly. I There's still somebody just like Brock looking for an invaluable piece of jewelry. <laughs> They're looking for the heart of the ocean because it did go back down. I mean, by all means, go for it. If you find it, I'll be, I'll be thrilled. Um, <laughs> No, I I understand what you're saying because I I follow there's one person's story I've talked about a little bit on my show that I follow not just because of the mystery but because of what people can turn a mystery into. I'm very interested in sort of the life and the story of Officer Murdoch. That's mm-hmm. the person whose life I'm the most interested in and also it's not that it doesn't matter how he died. It, it it does in the sense, but it also, to in my mind, it doesn't quite matter exactly what happened. Like the legacy of a person, I think, is more important than exactly how you know someone met their end. And um, well, I I think I depending I on the circumstance. Yeah, I understand the controversy, and I as do I. Um, 
what I do know as a writer, like going back to, I was telling you about The Wilderness, my play uh, mm-hmm. about the boxer um, from 1912, who was an Olympic gold medal winning boxer two times in a row. And we were writing it, I was writing it around the time of 2011, when the London Olympics were coming to the East End of London. They were building the Olympic Park and this particular boxer lived and trained right there like he drank the same water as the present day olympians would be drinking out of the same water system um and the reality is that his life was pretty banal Mm-hmm. It, you know, you have to condense drama and intrigue and excitement. You know, it's a boxing match or it's the Olympics or we're training for a gold medal and the pressure. And then in the middle, you put the First World War. So these boys went to the war and then when they came back, they were completely different, but they still had to win that gold medal. OK, so what you end up doing is amalgamating a number of characters that so you've learned that these real people were doing this and that real person was doing that. But now you've got five characters when you really only need one or two Mm -hmm. so you know and you see it at the beginning of 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 um films based on a true story this is based on a true story some of the names have been changed and some of the characters and the situations have been have been melded have been amalgamated to get the point across and what the, the the I think the shame of it, it with Officer Murdoch is that that guy did not commit suicide, but you could see how the pressure and the the build up of that moment, and then of course you've got another fictional character, Cal, who's trying to throw money at him to get him in a lifeboat. That's an amalgamation of somebody. The the point of that story is that the man with the money thought it was going to save his life, and the man trying to save everybody's lives couldn't save everybody mm-hmm. um and and james cameron used that character who we've known from the beginning because take her to see mr murdoch mm-hmm. and you've you've created a fictional situation out of a very factual setup yes and i think to it what i i all i was trying to get to with that is that it's the story of his legacy that interests me the most and what he did for people, you know, saving people on the ship is a big deal. Yes. And as you were saying, you know, you can follow the stories that we know as much as you like, you know, the famous fictional versions of Jack and Rose, but it's interesting to look at the people in the background. Like, I don't know exactly how much time um, Mr. Stewart spent on screen as um officer murdoch but i'm pretty sure that if you actually go through with a stopwatch and start stop start stop start stop it's not very much well, it's um, very ex- ex- precisely and the same can be true said of many of the other um minor speaking characters like you see officer wild for what seven and a half seconds but kind of remember him you know light toller pops up here and there you've got the repeating stewards and so and so the screen time is not much but it is impactful. Trudy's another one where it's like, I don't know, you spend a grand total of one and a half minutes on the screen, but it's enough to be memorable. And I think that that's important because it goes to show that thought went into all of those characters and not just, oh, there's two characters and a bunch of other people die. That's exactly right. And you're putting your finger on what why I was cast is that he wanted to, myself and many others, he wanted to create a small city where you would see recurring people. They didn't have to have lines or or even real characters. Uh, And some did, of course. You wanted it because it was a small city and it was a microcosm of the world on this one ship. And of course, everything that we all shot could not possibly make it into the final cut. But his intention, and certainly going back to The Wilderness, my screenplay, The Wilderness, I used that model I had a I had a group of people in the East End of London and I kept recurring characters in the pub or at the boxing match. And I knew I was doing it because I remember that's why I got the job on Titanic, that he didn't want to just pull on core extras like, oh, love, can you just stand there and kind of give a look at Leo as he comes into the dining room? He wanted an actor who had done the research that I had done because I that's my job. 
and not just somebody from, you know, who was a day player. They wanted people, he wanted people who had an understanding which made his job easier, which made his job of peppering that world with recurring characters. And of course, you know, when you're talking about the officers, they're all there. They all have a place there and are very important, especially at that, those final moments, sh literally shoving people onto those lifeboats. I'm running out of time and I'm just like, I have a hundred questions. Okay, um, we can keep going. We can no, keep well, well, uh, well, here's what I want to sort of end out with. I would love more people to see Ship of Dreams. I really would. Where are people, can they stream it online? Can they buy it? Is it going to be screening? Not yet. Not, Not yet. yet. All right. We've done a couple of film festivals. We premiered in uh, Los Angeles in August. Mm -hmm. And um, then we got picked up by a sales agent. So you go for when you're an independent filmmaker, you're like, social media and watch my film and we're getting into film festivals. And, you know, you're trying to get the buzz. But we've been picked up rather quickly by uh, a sales company. Yes. And um, next week, uh, well, I don't know when you're listening to this, but it, it's going to America. American film market AFM which is a big platform arena for all the movies that need to find a home either in cinemas or on streaming platforms mm -hmm. so that's all kind of been taken out of my hands now in a slightly frustrating way but a slightly sense of relief way that actually I have a group of really professional people who know how to place a film and a documentary like this what my dream is that it's playing right next to wherever Titanic is on a streamer. So Paramount Plus, Disney Plus, every television station on the planet. Because basically what we've done, um, and it's been said more than once and not by me, is we've made a 93-minute commercial for Titanic because people watch the film and they're like, oh, what? hang on, I've got to go back and watch Titanic now. Because now you have a... You have a new perspective on those characters. And you're I'm laughing because I'm gesturing at myself very yes, you emphatically. Are, you are, because I know, I know, I'm so familiar with it. And in fact, Ewan Stewart, who plays um, Officer Murdoch, I have a story about him. I haven't spoken to him since um, I met him 25 years ago. But there were many, many evenings in the bar at the Real Del Mar where it was happy hour between like five and seven. So... Um, Brian Walsh, who played the pipes in Gaelic Storm, he would bring his pipes. Um, people would bring guitars and sing songs, folk songs, English Lovely. folk songs, Irish folk songs. Ewan is Scottish and his father was a very, very famous um, uh, Scottish uh, performer and singer, Andy Stewart. So he had grown up with music. He would play the guitar. He would play these Scottish folk songs that would just melt your heart. Joan Griffith would sing Mafanwi, which is this very famous Welsh song. It was like we were all in the third class dance scene singing songs we knew or just listening to others singing songs to pass the time. Um, and then, you know, Ewan Stewart's name is spelt E-W-A-N, mm -hmm. which phonetically is E-1, right? So, yes. the, yeah, we had... Um, uh, uh, Spanish speaking ADs and I just will never forget somebody calling for you and going Ewan, Ewan, we need you at the set now <laughs> For uh, Americans who are a little more familiar with Ewan McGregor uh, no. That's right, it's the same spelling as Ewan Exactly, uh, also if anyone if anyone listening knows how to get in touch with Ewan Stewart um, that is my gold level, like eight. That is who I would absolutely love to talk to on this show. I would love to talk to him. I have no idea how to get in touch with him. I have spent an inordinate and shameful amount of time Googling it. Uh, so I have given up. But if somebody does, because I'm not one of those people that wants to harass or like go really weird. But if anyone knows how to actually get in touch with him, or if he hears this, I would love to talk to him about his experience. But this is also because I'm selfishly very interested in Murdoch. <laughs> Also, he might want to, um, or maybe he's, there'll be two things. He'll be fed up with having to talk about the controversy. That's my or guess. He'll want to one more, one more time sincerely explain 
his his part in that and what he's had to put up with for the last 25 years because again remember we all have had careers beyond titanic and we've done many many other things so this is just a lovely sort of spike in in the in our career graphs but um you know we do have other things to talk about yeah well that's why i'm I'm really grateful this now I'm really grateful that you came on to talk about your documentary. I mean, obviously, being the show that I am, I do have to ask you about that experience. But I am interested, you know, a large portion of why I do this is to find out what people have made since then. You know, yeah. I love to hear about like your documentary, not not because it's like, oh, I don't care about that movie from 25 years ago. It's because I care more about what you're doing now, because that's to me what's fascinating about the sort of 2020s era Titanic. It's how did the movie influence you, person who watched it? How did the movie not influence you, person who didn't watch it? And how did, for for those of you who were a part of it, how has it affected your life? And I'm really grateful that you came on and talked about this documentary because I really, I I'm I'm lucky. I had I had a chance to see it. Um, that's why I'm like anyone who who hasn't. What, did, what what feelings did it evoke in you? That's what I'm interested in it made me think a lot about my own story and it, it made me, you know, I think that one of the things, you know, someone made the joke. um, I don't remember who it was that said, well, my friends were talking to me and they were like, why do you watch this movie so often? You know, it always hits the iceberg. Jack always dies. I don't watch this movie to understand what happens in the movie. I I know what happens in the movie because as you've all pointed out, I've seen it a hundred times. I watched this movie to have that feeling again. That's why I watch the movie. I don't watch it because I'm like, what happens? Does it hit an iceberg? I don't know. I know exactly what happens in this movie. I watch it because I want to feel that feeling of hope in anything when Jack starts screaming excitedly at the bow of the ship. I want to feel that like, oh my gosh, I'm in love again feeling when they when they kiss. I want to feel that pride in the open sea that Murdoch and Smith have when they stand on the railing. I don't watch the movie to find out what happens. I watch it to feel that again. And that's what I got out of watching the documentary was a bunch of other people who are basically sitting in front of a camera and saying, I watched this movie to feel a certain way again. And, and thank you. And that is also my theory about the power of the movies. I was um, one thing I did when I went back to London after 10 years in Los Angeles, I got a role on a very big primetime soap opera called Coronation Street. And I I learned I I had a great time. I learned um, on that very, you know, talk about going from the sublime to the ridiculous, you know, (laughs) uh, TV, TV soap is three cameras going simultaneously make quick decisions don't even learn your lines just look at your lines before you go and luckily the scenes were short enough anyway so i had this this really amazing experience and and i realized that on that show and on that job that we people are why is coronation why is eastenders why is coronation street so popular people stop their lives three times a week three nights a week to watch and see what's going on 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 this street and in that pub and in those little terraced houses and it was very clear to me that people come home from from really stressful jobs and they want to see lies played out that are funnier, sexier, more violent, more emotional, and more everything than their own lives. They understand it, they connect to it, but it's heightened because it's soap, right? Mm -hmm. And I will tell you, I consider I did some of my best acting work on that show because you are spontaneous like this. Oh my gosh, you know, my gut feeling, my gut reaction to to this moment. But also you have to find the truth in it. It cannot be... It cannot be hammy. It has to be that's, that's arguable, you know. But mm-hmm. I found my character was a very real person to identify with. And so you expand that into feature films. Why do we, what, what kept everybody going during the pandemic? It was Netflix and binge watching Breaking Bad for the third time. 
there was we know what happens we know what he's playing at we know what mm-hmm. but we watch it to exp- as just as you said to experience that drama and that action and that love and that romance over and over again and it's why theater perpetuates it's why really good drama for me really good i mean i cannot wait i'm champing at the bit for the final season of the crown to come out and i always miscalculate it i watch them back to back to back and then i've watched the last one and i'm like the last one there's one more coming right no no it just ended alexandra you're gonna have to go back to the beginning so i thought you were talking to me for a second i have the same name i was like don't call me out like that i do the same thing yes it's that we watch shakespeare plays over and over again we know how they all end and we watch them because the drama is an an extension of our own lives or an extension of our own lives as maybe we would like them to be yes but at the end of the day it is a chance to feel some way again yeah yeah and um i don't watch zombie movies i i don't because i don't want to feel like that but <laughs> I feel a certain other ways so we there's and there's everything to choose from there is everything to choose from yeah well i know that you have a very busy life and everything. So I am going to let you get back to it before I ask you a hundred thousand more questions. But once again, to anybody listening, once it's available, um, keep an eye out. Maybe follow the Facebook pages and stuff for the Ship of um, Dreams. We have we have a website. It's Ship oh, okay. of Dreams Film. Ship of Dreams Film dot com. Um, we have Instagram, which is Ship of Dreams Film. Um, also follow my podcast, Titanic Talk, which on Instagram is Titanic underscore talk underscore podcast on Instagram, because, um, once we know where that's available, we will, we, we created the podcast singularly to promote the film. And now the film's gone quiet a little bit because it's going to market, but the podcast is taken on a life of its own. I host that with Nelson Aspen, who's also in the, in the documentary. Um, and then I have a TikTok page, which I'm not terribly good at feeding. But again, once the film is out, if you go follow us on TikTok, Ship of Dreams Film, once the film is available, I will be, I will be, I will have something to TikTok about. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Alexandra, thank you so much for coming on and talking about your experience and about the uh, the documentary. Yes, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. See you again soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Titanic Talkline was created and produced by me, Alexia. Be sure to keep up with the show on all the social medias at Titanic Talkline on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. That is all one word, Titanic Talkline, T-I-T-A-N-I-C-T-A-L-K-L-I-N-E. If you want to get in touch, be on the show, sponsor the show, or have a question or anything you want to tell me, send me an email at titanictalkline, again, all one word, at gmail.com. That's titanictalkline at gmail.com. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time. Bye!